Well, have you ever wondered whether your faith would hold up under persecution? Or maybe you're experiencing suffering right now and you're not sure how to press forward in faith. If so, then 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19 has a word for you. Welcome to the Radical with David Platt podcast, the latest sermons from teacher, author, and pastor David Platt delivered weekly. As always, you can find thousands of more gospel-centered, nations-minded resources at our website, Radical.net. In today's message from David Platt, we are encouraged not only to expect suffering, but also to embrace God's good purposes for His people through suffering. We can persevere knowing that Christ is worth it and our God will never forsake us. Here's Pastor David Platt with a sermon titled Christmas Hope. How can you keep on rejoicing in suffering? From 1 Peter chapter 4. So back in September, we started this journey through 1 Peter and we challenged one another to memorize the first chapter of this book in the Bible together. It's an awesome chapter. And some of you have memorized some of it. Others of you have memorized all of it. But regardless, I want us to start today by reading, or to the extent possible, reciting 1 Peter chapter 1 together. So I'm going to put it up here on the screen. And wherever you are in this room or watching, I want to invite you to say it out loud with me. And for those who have memorized it, try to say it out loud with your eyes closed. So, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Let's say it out loud together. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. 
It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, be ho- you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited by your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world and was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified yourselves by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Amen. Ah, praise God for his word. It's so good and it is so Relevant. I want to show you how. So I think it's clear, even if you just heard 1 Peter 1 for the first time, from the start of this letter, Peter is writing to Christians in churches spread throughout various regions who are experiencing suffering. So you go back to verse 6, and Peter said how they are being grieved, did you catch the language, by various trials. And their faith is being tested, like like gold being tested by fire. So it's not surprising then for us to get to our text today, so starting in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, and we hear Peter say, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. It's almost the exact same language that Peter started the letter with. Then listen to what he says next, verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. That's the same language we just read back in chapter one, verse six. In this, you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Then in verses eight and nine, he says, though you do not 
You've not seen him, you love him, though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. You hear that language, rejoice with joy that's inexpressible. So now in chapter four, verse 12, he says it again, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Now that word at the very beginning of verse 13, rejoice, if you were making a note in your Bible, you might write out to the side, it literally means rejoice and keep on rejoicing. The whole picture is continual, nonstop rejoicing. So the question I wanna answer today is, how is that possible? How can you keep on rejoicing in the middle of suffering. I think that is an extremely relevant question for our lives. Because I know every single person within the sound of my voice right now is either suffering right now, you have suffered, or you will suffer. I'm thinking about everyone, including guests who are joining us today, and then especially members of our church family. I think about Phil and Larissa Wynn at our Loudon location who unexpectedly lost their two-year-old this week. I think about Ben Fairfax, my friend and brother here at Tyson's who was feeling fine a month ago till he had a CT scan that revealed inoperable cancer and now he's fighting for his life. I think of Marissa and men and women and children across our church with special needs for whom every day is a challenge. And this year has made everything all the harder. I think of this year in so many ways, from brothers and sisters who have really struggled with the isolation of these days, to others who are struggling in marriage, others who have suffered financially as your savings have been depleted, your struggling from paycheck to paycheck, or maybe that business you poured so much of your life into is struggling to survive. I think about NBC missionaries who join us every week online, walking through all kinds of struggles, separated from family and comfort, living as outsiders in another culture. I could go on and on, and in every story the question is the same. How do you keep on rejoicing in the middle of hard days? And one of my jobs as a pastor is to prepare you for hard days and to shepherd you through them. I was reading an article this last week from Tim Chalice. He's a friend whose 20-year-old son suddenly collapsed and died about a month ago. And Tim described how agonizing this last month has been emotionally, but not theologically. And here's what I mean by that. Actually, here's what he meant by that. He was writing about how by God's grace, he and his family were ready. They had been trained by God's word and sound doctrine. He said, in the moment we heard that news, we knew the character of God, we knew the promises of God, and we knew where we stood with God. And unbeknownst to us, he said, we had been preparing ourselves with truths that were ready to be called upon and relied upon in that moment of need. 
He said, there's no way we could have prepared ourselves for the emotional agony of losing a child, but we did prepare ourselves theologically. During these days, we have not had to ask the big questions about whether God is good or whether something can happen outside of God's control or whether God is punishing us or whether there is really a heaven or hell. Those issues were considered, discussed, and decided long ago. We had established in our minds and hearts the truths that would interpret our experience. And this is one of my primary prayers for you. I want you, right where you're sitting, to be ready when the day of suffering comes or when the days of suffering continue. I want you to know the character of God and the promises of God. I want you to know where you stand with God. I want you to be prepared with truths that are ready to be called upon and relied upon in that moment. And then I haven't even gotten to the specific type of suffering that Peter is addressing in this letter, and that's suffering for being a Christian. So Peter's writing to people who, because of their faith, were being denied jobs and economic opportunities. They were experiencing social isolation because of their faith. Some of them experiencing active persecution that would lead to their imprisonment and death, including Peter himself, who would be killed for following Jesus. And it's interesting. I read a Bible commentator this week who was talking about how most Christians in the West, particularly in the United States, don't know this kind of suffering. Certainly not to the level that first century Christians knew it. She said, and I quote, modern Western society has for many centuries been so largely shaped by the Judeo-Christian ethic that acceptable values of Christians and of unbelievers have not necessarily conflicted so sharply. Therefore, Western Christians may not be able to relate to the theme of suffering for Christ in 1 Peter, since most have not lived in a social, social situation similar to the original readers. And I read that, and then I thought about the direction that our culture and our country is going in, how biblical views of marriage and sexuality have become increasingly countercultural, even offensive. And I don't think we are very far off from the time when many of your jobs will be threatened as long as you profess biblical faith. In some senses, we're already there. In other ways, it's coming more and more where advancement in a company or an organization or the government will not come if you believe what the Bible says about gender. Where you will be asked, if not forced, to teach or promote that which is contrary to your faith. And you will face a choice of whether to keep your job or to keep your faith. And I want to prepare you on that day to lose your job, not your faith. I want to prepare you to lose your house, your car, your reputation, but never your faith. And then beyond this country, I think about brothers and sisters I mentioned from NBC who are serving as missionaries around the world, I want to prepare many more to go to other countries where you may lose your life for professing your faith. Last week, we talked about the type of Christianity we're passing down to the next generation. I want us to raise up a generation in the church whose aim in life is not ultimately 
to go to a great school, get a great degree, have a great job with a great spouse and a great house. No, whose ultimate aim is to accomplish a great commission that may cost them everything. So on all of these levels, whether it's simply pain or suffering in this world or persecution that comes from following Jesus, I want to prepare you well. My prayer coming into these few moments today has been, God, please take your word today by your spirit and comfort people in suffering, prepare people for suffering, and save people from eternal suffering. So I want to show you God's answer to this question. How, you keep, how can you keep on rejoicing in the middle of suffering? And the answer is found in three truths from 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19 that I want to give you, and I want to call you to believe them with all your heart and be ready to recall them when that moment comes. So here's the first one. One, how can you keep on rejoicing in the middle of suffering? Believe that God is working and suffering is not the end. Believe that God is working and suffering is not the end. So let me actually read this whole passage to you, 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19, and pay particularly close attention to the first verse and the last verse, kind of bookends on this passage. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer, so this is the last verse, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So do you hear the, the first verse, the last verse? First verse, beloved do not be surprised. Don't be shocked at the fiery trial when it comes upon you as though something strange were happening to you. So the Bible is addressing here what we all feel when we face suffering that we didn't see coming. Everything is going well until this or that happened and all of a sudden everything feels like it's out of control and up for question. It's like we believe that God is good and kind and loving and completely in control as long as our circumstances are smooth. But as soon as those circumstances change, we wonder, is God good? Is God kind? Is God loving? Is God in control? And the Bible is teaching here that even when our circumstances change, God is the same. He is still good. He is still kind, he is still loving, and he is absolutely, ultimately in control. Which is what the last verse says here. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Now that phrase, according to God's will, likely means a couple of things. One, this is differentiating from the kind of suffering that comes from disobeying God's will. 
So in this passage, Peter is drawing a distinction between suffering for doing good and suffering for doing evil, like murdering or stealing or meddling in others' business. So sometimes you and I experience suffering, hardship, pain, hurt on all kinds of levels because of our sin, because of our disobedience to God. But that's not the kind of suffering Peter's talking about here. He's talking about suffering according to God's will while doing good. So think about the kinds of suffering that this included in the first century when Peter wrote this. We've seen this already. Christians for doing good and following Jesus were being abused, insulted, reviled, ostracized, persecuted, even killed. So does that mean that God is somehow the author of abuse or the author of persecution? Absolutely not. These things are clearly a result of sin and evil in this world, and they affect even God's people who are doing good. But that's part of the point of the passage. In a world of sin and evil and abuse and pain and suffering, God's people are not immune to these things. As soon as you become a Christian, you don't have a shield around you that keeps you from suffering. If anything, you're now more susceptible to suffering because in addition to normal suffering in a fallen world, you may now suffer for following Jesus. So don't be surprised, the Bible says, at the fiery trial when it comes upon you as though something strange were happening to you. When all of God's people throughout the history of this sinful world have experienced the same thing. And how did they get through it? They believed that God was working and their suffering was not the end. Think about it. Through years of infertility, Abraham believed that God was working and his wife's barrenness was not the end. And eventually, when he was about 100 years old, he had a son named Isaac. Job lost all that he had. Possessions destroyed. All of his children died in an instant. Boils all over his body as his wife tells him to curse God and die. Yet he held on to belief that God was working and he discovered that his suffering was not the end. Joseph in a dungeon for 12 years believed that God was working. This was not the end. Same for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in a fiery furnace. Daniel in a den of lions. They believed God was working. Their suffering was not the end. Ruth working in a field. David fleeing for his life. Hosea with an unfaithful wife. Over and over again. This is the story of people in the Bible. People who in their suffering believed that God was working and suffering was not the end. You say, well, what about those who suffered and died? Wasn't that the end for them? What about the list of people in Hebrews chapter 11 who, like Stephen, were stoned to death or sawn in two or killed with a sword? Or what about Peter himself who ended up being crucified? Wasn't suffering the end for him? Oh, no, not at all. Just look to the center of the Bible. Jesus, the Son of God, and it's right here in this passage, verse 13, Rejoice insofar as you share in sufferings with and for Christ, with and for Jesus, because he was mocked and beaten and scourged and spit upon, nailed to a cross to die, all according to God's will, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 19. Get it, even in the most evil moment in all of history, the murder of Jesus in the flesh, even in that moment, God was working. 
And Jesus' suffering was not the end. Three days later, he rose from the grave. He now ascended into heaven where he has exalted the right hand of God and he is bringing everyone who trusts in him to glory with him. So brother or sister, believe this. Rejoice in this. Even in your suffering, you can know that the good, kind, loving God of the universe creator of your life is working and your suffering will not be the end of your story. And I know that's hard to see. I was trying to think about how to illustrate this. So here's one attempt. Here's one attempt. The tallest building in the Western Hemisphere is One World Trade Center. It's 1,776 feet tall. The cornerstone for that building was laid in 2004. Two years later, let me show you a picture of what it looked like. That's two years in. Now let me show you a picture of it the next year. How about this picture the next year? So we're now four years in. A year later, it looked like this. And in 2010, six years after its cornerstone was laid, here is what the building looked like. Now, if you were to stop at this point and assess the beauty of this building and the skill of its builder, what would you say? You'd say this building is a total mess. A disappointment to say the least. After all this time, You'd have serious questions about the builder. Does he have any idea what he's doing? This builder building is a disaster and the builder is inept. But you would be making a premature, premature judgment, wouldn't you? For maybe that builder was still working and this picture was not the end. If only you would suspend your judgment a little longer in the next year, you would see this. And a year later, you would see this. And one year after that, you would see this. And in that moment, you would realize all that time that builder was working and he knew what he was doing. And in the end, he was building something beautiful. So brother or sister in Christ, how can you keep on rejoicing in the middle of suffering? Even when your life looks like this, or maybe even this, believe that God is working, that this is not the end of your story, and God is building something beautiful. Hide this truth in your heart and recall it and rely on it in tough days. Believe that God is working and suffering is not the end. I've got to speed this up. But all these truths are so potent. So here's the second one to stand on when suffering comes. So one, believe that God is working and suffering is not the end. Two, believe that God is with you 
And his love for you knows no end. So I want to show you this, God's presence with you and his love for you in two places. One in verse 13, one in verse 14. So first, verse 13, which we've already read, Peter references how we share Christ's sufferings. And I don't want to move past that phrase without fully realizing the wonder of these words, Christ's sufferings. Because this, in so many ways, summarizes the entire meaning of Christmas. And if you're not a Christian, please listen really closely here. If you are a Christian, I pray that you will feel this in a fresh way today to all of us in a world that's full of sorrow and pain and hurt and suffering. Christmas is a reminder that God has not left us alone in this world. Christmas is an announcement that God has come to us in the person of Jesus. God has put on a robe of human flesh. He was born as a baby. And ultimately, yes, he was born to die on a cross for our sins, to rise from the dead so that every sinner who trusts in him can be forgiven of all their sins and enjoy eternal life with him. But there's more here, so don't miss it, in the very fact that Jesus has come to us and lived among us we realize that for all who trust in Jesus, he not only saves you from your sin, but he sympathizes with you in your suffering. In other words, you have a Savior who knows how you feel. Are you hurting? Jesus knows what it's like to hurt. Have you been reviled or abused? Jesus knows what it is to be reviled and abused. Do you feel alone, disappointed, betrayed? Jesus knows what it is to feel all of those things. I've used the illustration before, what the Oxford Companion to music called sympathetic resonance. If there were two pianos on the stage, I could play middle C on one of them. And the same note, without anybody doing anything over there, the same note on that piano would gently respond, make the same noise that this piano is making. It's called sympathetic resonance. And when I think about that in a much greater way, I think about the hurts in your heart, in my heart, amidst sorrow in this world. When a note of sorrow hits our hearts, know this, that note resonates in his heart. When you walk through suffering, you have a Savior who knows what it's like to hurt as you're hurting. He loves you so much, and he lives to intercede for you and provide for all that you need in that moment. Which leads to verse 14, that takes us to a whole other level, as the Bible says, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Now stop there. Just follow the flow of this verse. If you're insulted, derided, abused, persecuted for the name of Christ, you're blessed. Why? Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Oh, you gotta see this. Do you wanna know how much God loves 
all those who trust in Jesus, who have entered into relationship with him, not only does Jesus resonate with you when you suffer, but he loves you so much that he covers you with his spirit in your suffering. The picture here of the spirit of glory resting upon you is like the cloud of God's glory resting on his people in the Old Testament as they wandered from place to place in the wilderness. So God's spirit rests on you as you walk through the wilderness of suffering. I believe this. You are not, you're never alone in the wilderness of suffering. You will never be alone no matter what that wilderness may hold. The Spirit is in you, on you. The Spirit of glory and of God. You ever wonder, like if this or that happens in my life, will I be able to stand? You wonder, what if I lose my child or my spouse or my parent? Could I stand? What if, what if I were to face that diagnosis? What if I were to face persecution? Could I stand? And whenever I think about that question, I think about Corey Tinboom, who worried as a little girl how she could stand, if she could stand against Nazi Germans, if she was ever threatened. She, she felt so weak at even the thought, and her father told her an illustration. He said, Corey, when you are going to take a journey on the train, do I give you your ticket three weeks early or just as you get on the train? And Corey answered, as I get on the train. And her father said, so God will give you the strength you need to be strong just when you need it and not before. This is exactly what God is promising in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 14. God is promising you that when you get that call, when you get that diagnosis, when you face that persecution, the Holy Spirit of glory will be resting upon you and he will help you suffer. Even down to the moment when you breathe your last breath and your heart stops beating, the Holy Spirit of God will be resting upon you. He will help you die and he will bring you to glory. Mark it down, brothers and sisters. In times of greatest suffering on earth, you will experience greatest support from heaven. How can you keep on rejoicing in the middle of suffering? Believe that God is with you and his love for you knows no end. And finally, third truth, Stand on in suffering. Believe that God is worthy and that you can trust him to the end. Believe that God is worthy and you can trust him to the end. So verse 15 says, let none of you suffer for sin and evil. And then verse 16 says, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, as you follow Christ, let him not be ashamed, but let him Glorify God in that name. And this is where I want to make the connection to what we saw just a few months ago in Philippians chapter 3 and 4, talking about contentment and joy in suffering. I don't know if you remember, but I'll pull it up here. We talked about how Paul, when he's writing Philippians chapter 3, listed out all kinds of things in this world that are good family heritage, social status, religious devotion, a moral lifestyle, and on and on. He starts talking about all these good things, and then he labels them loss. Rubbish is the word he uses. 
compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus. He said all these best things in the world cannot compare with the gain of knowing Jesus. Even suffering with him and eventually experiencing glory with him. Then we talked about how suffering at the core is when these good things are taken away from us in this world. When people we love, family, friends, when our health is taken away, when our job is taken away, when our reputation is taken away, when relationships, stability, so many good things we could list here. But we talked about how when you have already put all those things in a column under loss, and you have put Jesus alone in a column under gain, then when good things like these are taken away from you, it's not easy, it's definitely not easy. The sadness is right and deep and the pain is real and the tears are many. But when Jesus is your life, then suffering, the taking away of these things, ultimately drives you more to who? To him, to Jesus. And the whole point of Philippians chapter three and four was that he is better, that he's better than all the best people and things in this world put together. He is worthy of all your trust. He is the source of ultimate eternal joy. And this is critical then to keeping joy in suffering. It's critical to remember that Jesus is supremely better than all the best things this world offers you put together. Than everything. And remember that when these really good gifts are taken away, the ultimate giver of good gifts is still there. And you can trust him all the way to the end. You think about it, there's coming a day when all these good things will be taken away from you and me. Family, possessions, job, health, our very breath, it'll all be gone. And if you don't have Jesus on that day, you will have nothing. You'll have nothing but eternal punishment as the consequence of your sin before God, according to 1 Peter 4, 17 and 18. But... For all who have trusted in Jesus, who have found in him the source of eternal joy. On that day, you lose everything in this world. You will gain the imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance of Jesus in the world to come. On that day, you will have God in all of his glory and his goodness for all of eternity. So how do you keep on rejoicing and suffering? By believing that God is worthy and you can trust him all the way to the end. So I guess that's the question that we must all ultimately answer then. Do we believe that God is worthy of our trust? I want to submit to you on this Sunday before Christmas that the reality of Christmas beckons us in a world of suffering to answer that question with a wholehearted yes. He is worthy of our trust and he has shown it in his son. So I want to give you a small preview 
of the online gathering on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day with a short clip from a song that a few of our sisters in Christ have sung about Jesus. And as you watch and listen to this Christmas song, I want to exhort you to see a picture of the God who is with you in your suffering, who is working in your suffering, and who is worthy of your trust all the way to the end. Watch this with me. Oh, little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. bow your heads with me. Bow your heads, close your eyes in this room, wherever you might be. I just want to ask you right where you are sitting, between you and God, have you put your trust in Jesus as the source of eternal joy in your life? The source of eternal hope in your life 
And do you know beyond the shadow of a doubt where you are sitting that if you were to die right now, that you would be carried into glory because, not because you've done good things, measured up compared to others, but because you have put your trust in Jesus as the Savior and Lord of your life. And if the answer to that question is not a resounding yes in your heart, I invite you right now in this holy moment to say to God, today I put my trust in you. I believe that Jesus died, came to this earth, lived the life I couldn't live, died on the cross to pay the price for my sins, and rose from the dead. And today I put my trust in him as Lord of my life. Today I trust that in a world of sin and evil and suffering and death, these things will not be the end of my story. For all who have trusted in Jesus, be encouraged today with God's word speaking directly to your heart. If you're walking through suffering, if what we've walked through today has brought up the pain of suffering from the past, or if everything's going great right now, hide these truths in your heart for the day when suffering comes. God, we praise you for your word. We praise you for your promise that leads us to say we believe that you are working in our suffering and it will not be the end. We believe that you are with us and your love for us knows no end. And we believe, together we say it, we believe that you are worthy and we can trust you all the way to the end. All glory be to your name, our God, our Savior, our Lord. Our glory be to your name, Jesus. For suffering for us, dying for us, rising from the dead, ascending into glory and promising to bring us with you through this world of pain and suffering. We love and praise you, God, and I pray these truths would encourage hearts today, prepare hearts for days to come, and ultimately save people from eternal suffering. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Here at Radical, we are not shy about revealing who it is that makes all of the gospel work we do possible. And by God's grace, it's you. And grateful is not adequate enough to describe our sentiment toward those generous souls who support Radical financially. Because of your generosity, we are able to keep our costs to a minimum and provide as many free resources as possible. Because of your generosity, we are able to educate the church about the unreached, train and equip pastors and church leaders literally around the globe, and put on catalytic events like Secret Church or one of our latest initiatives, Urgent, which is our work that supports 
experts, indigenous believers who are making disciples and multiplying healthy churches among the world's hardest to reach people and places. Because of you and your financial generosity, through the grace of God, we exist and we're more committed than ever to our mission. And it's here, once again, at the close of 2020, that we ask for your help to partner with us as we charge into darkness armed with the bright light of the gospel of Jesus Christ to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. If you would like to partner with us on this mission, you can give to the ministry of Radical by visiting Radical.net forward slash donate or specifically to Radical's Urgent Initiative at UrgentNeeds.org. Once again, we thank you. Well, that's all for today's episode of Radical with David Platt. I'm your host, Thomas Bowen. And until next time, Merry Christmas.